Section 43 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Perard. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. Section 43, Old Time London by Walter Besant. Walter Besant, 1838-2. Walter Besant, born in Portsmouth, England, in 1838, did not begin his career as a novelist till he was thirty years old. His preparation for the works that possessed so certain a maturity of execution, with as certain an ideal of performance, was made at King's College, London, and afterwards at Christ's College, Cambridge, where he took mathematical honors. Abandoning his idea of entering the church, he taught for seven years in the Royal College of Mauritius. Ill health compelled his return to England, and he then took up literature as a profession. His first novel he had the courage to burn when the first publisher to whom he showed it refused it. But the succeeding years brought forth studies in early French poetry, a delicate and scholarly series of essays, and edition of Rabelais, of whom he is the biographer and disciple, and, with Professor Palmer, a History of Jerusalem, a work for which he had equipped himself when secretary of the Palestine Exploration Fund. Mr. Besant was also a student in another special field, he knew his Dickens as no other undergraduate in the university knew that branch of polite literature, and passed an examination on the Pickwick Papers, which the author declared that he himself would have failed in. By these processes, Mr. Besant fitted himself mentally and socially for the task of storytelling. The relations of a man of letters to the rest of the world are comprehensively revealed in the long list of his novels. From the beginning, he was one who comes with a tale, quote, which holdeth children from play and old men from the chimney corner, unquote. Nor is the charm lessened by the sense of a living and kindly voice addressing the hearer. His novels are easy reading and do not contain an obscure sentence. As art is an expression of the artist's mind, and not a rigid ecclesiastical canon. It may be expressed in as many formulas as there are artists. Therefore, while to few readers life casts the rosy reflection that we have learned to call Byzantine, one would not wish it to disappear, nor to be discredited. It was in the year 1869 that Walter Besant, by a happy chance, made the acquaintance of James Rice, the editor of Once a Week and became a contributor to that magazine. In 1871, that literary partnership between them began, which is interesting in the history of collaboration. Mr. Rice had been a barrister, and added legal lore to Mr. Besant's varied and accurate literary equipment. The brilliant series of novels that followed includes Ready Money Mortiboy, My Little Girl, with harp and crown, the golden butterfly, the seamy side, and the chaplain of the fleet. 
the latter story that of an innocent young country girl left to the guardianship of her uncle chaplain of the fleet prison by the death of her father is delicately and surprisingly original the influence of dickens is felt in the structure of the story and the faithful almost photographic fidelity to locality betrays in which footsteps the authors have followed almost but the chaplain though he belongs to a family whose features are familiar to the readers of little dorrit and great expectations has not existed until he appears in these pages pompous clever and without principle but not lacking in natural affection the young girl whose guileless belief in everybody forces the worst people to assume the characters her purity and innocence endows them with is to the foul prison what Pisicola was to charney nor will the moralist find fault with the author whose kind heart teaches him to include misfortune in his catalogue of virtues mr rice died in eighteen eighty two and all sorts and conditions of men mr besant's first independent novel appeared the same year it is a novel with a purpose and accomplished its purpose because an artist's hand was necessary to paint the picture of east london that met with such a response as the people's palace the appeal to philanthropy was a new one it was a plea for a little more of the pleasures and graces of life for the two million of people who inhabit the east end of the great city it is not a picture of life in the lowest phases where the scenes are as dramatic as in the highest social world but a story of human life the nobility the meanness the pathos of it in hopelessly commonplace surroundings where the fight is not a hand-to-hand -hand struggle with bitter poverty or crime but with dullness and monotony the characters in all sorts and conditions of men are possibly more typical than real but one hesitates to question either characters or situation the impossible story has become true and the vision that the enthusiastic young hero and heroine dream has materialized into a lovely reality the children of gibeon eighteen eighty four and the world went very well then eighteen eighty five are written with the same philanthropic purpose but if sir walter besant were not first of all a story-teller the possessor of a living voice that holds one spellbound till he has finished his tale the reader would be more sensible of the wide knowledge of the novelist in his familiarity with life in its very forms here are about thirty novels displaying an intimate knowledge of many crafts trades and professions the ways of landsman and voyager of country and town of the new world and the old of modern charlatanism as shown in herpolis of the woman question among london jews as in the rebel queen and the suggestion of the repose and sufficiency of life's simple needs as told in call her mine and celia's arbor in the ivory gate the hero is the victim of a remarkable hallucination in the story of the inner house the plummet of suggestion 
plunges into depths not sounded before and the soul's regeneration is unfolded in the loveliest of parables the range of sir walter Bassant reaches from the somewhat conventionalized dorothy forster to st catherine's tower where deep tragedy approaches the melodramatic or from the fascination of the master craftsman to the whopping idol of the heaps of miser's treasure there is largeness of stroke in this list and a wide prospect his humour is of the cheerful outdoor kind and the laugh is at foibles rather than weakness he pays little attention to fashion and literature except to give a good-natured nod to a passing fad it would be difficult to classify him under any school his stories are not analytical nor is one conscious of that painstaking fidelity to art which is no longer classed among the minor virtues when he fights it is with wrong and oppression and the cheerless monotony of the lives of the poor but he fights classes rather than individuals although certain characters like fielding the plagiarist in armorel of lioness are studied from life the village of bankrupts in all in a garden fair is a whimsical conceit like the disguise of angela in all sorts and conditions of men and the double identity of edmund gray in the ivory gate in reading Bessant, we are constantly reminded that humanity is wider than the world and though its simplest facts are its greatest there is both interest and edification in eccentricities in 1895 he was made a baronet and is president of the society of authors of whom he has been a gallant champion against the publishers old-time london from sir walter Besant's london harper and brothers the london house either in saxon or norman time presented no kind of resemblance to the roman villa it had no cloisters no hypocaust no suite or sequence of rooms this unlikeliness is another proof if any were wanting that the continuity of tenure had been wholly broken if the saxons went into london as has been suggested peaceably and left the people to carry on their old life and their trade in their own way the roman and british architecture no new thing but a style grown up in a course of years and found fitted to the climate would certainly have remained that however was not the case the englishman developed his house from the patriarchal idea first there was the common hall in this the household lived fed transacted business and made their cheer in the evenings it was built of timber and to keep out the cold draughts it was afterwards lined with tapestry at first they used simple cloths which in great houses were embroidered and painted Purchase of various kinds were affixed to the walls, whereon the weapons, the musical instruments, the cloaks, etc., were hung up. The lord and lady sat on a high seat, not, I am inclined to think, on a dais at the end of the hall, which would have been cold for them, but on a great chair near the fire, which was burning in the middle of the hall. This fashion long continued. I have myself seen a college hall warmed by a fire in a brazier, burning under the lantern of the hall. The furniture consisted of benches. The table was laid on trestles, spread with a white cloth, 
and removed after dinner. The hall was open to all who came, on condition that the guest should leave his weapons at the door. The floor was covered with reeds, which made a clean, soft, and warm carpet, on which the company could, if they pleased, lie round the fire. They had carpets or rugs also, but reeds were commonly used. The traveller who chances to find himself at the ancient and most interesting town of Kingston-on-Hull, which very few English people, and still fewer Americans, have the curiosity to explore, should visit the Trinity House. There, among many interesting things, he will find a hall where reeds are still spread, but no longer so thickly as to form a complete carpet. I believe this to be the last survival of the reed carpet. The times of meals were the breakfast at about nine, the noon meat or dinner at twelve, and the even meat or supper, probably at a movable time, depending on the length of the day. When lighting was costly and candles were scarce, the hours of sleep would be naturally longer in winter than in the summer. In their manner of living, the Saxons were fond of vegetables, especially of the leek, onion, and garlic. Beans they also had. These were introduced probably at the time when they commenced intercourse with the outer world. Peas, radishes, turnips, parsley, mint, sage, cress, rue, and other herbs. They had nearly all our modern fruits, though many show by their names, which are Latin or Norman a later introduction. They made use of butter, honey, and cheese. They drank ale and mead. The latter is still made, but in small quantities, in Somerset and Hertfordshire. The Normans brought over the custom of drinking wine. In the earliest times, the whole family slept in the common hall. The first improvement was the erection of the solar, or upper chamber. This was above the hall, or a portion of it, or over the kitchen and buttery attached to the hall. The arrangement may be still observed in many of the old colleges of Oxford or Cambridge. The solar was first the sleeping room of the lord and lady, though afterward it served not only this purpose, but also for an antechamber to the dormitory of the daughters and the maidservants. The men of the household still slept in the hall below. Later on, bed recesses were contrived in the wall, as one may find in Northumberland at the present day. The bed was commonly, but not for the ladies of the house, merely a big bag stuffed with straw. A sheet wrapped round the body formed the only nightdress. But there were also pillows, blankets, and coverlets. The early English bed was quite as luxurious as any that followed after, until the invention of the spring mattress gave a new and hitherto unhoped-for joy to the hours of night. The second step in advance was the ladies' bower, a room or suite of rooms set apart for the ladies of the house and their women. For the first time, as soon as this room was added, the women could follow their own vocations of embroidery, spinning, and needlework of all kinds, apart from the rough and noisy talk of the men. The main features, therefore, of every great house, whether in town or country, from the 7th to the 12th century, were the hall, the solar built over the kitchen and buttery, 
and the lady's bower there was also the garden in all times the english have been fond of gardens bacon thought it not beneath his dignity to order the arrangement of a garden long before bacon a writer of the twelfth century describes a garden as it should be Quote, it should be adorned on this side with roses lilies and the marigold on that side with parsley cost fennel southernwood coriander sage savory hyssop mint vine detony pellitory lettuce cresses and the peony let there be beds enriched with onions leeks garlic melons and scallions the garden is also enriched by the cucumber the soporiferous poppy and the daffodil and the acanthus nor let potherbs be wanting as beetroot sorrel and mallow it is useful also to the gardener to have anise mustard and wormwood a noble garden will give you medlars winces the pear main peaches pears of st regal pomegranates citrons oranges almonds dates and figs the latter fruits were perhaps attempted but one doubts their arriving at ripeness perhaps the writer sets down what he hoped would be some day achieved the indoor amusements of the time were very much like our own we have a little music in the evening so did our forefathers we sometimes have a little dancing so did they but the dancing was done for them we go to the theatres to see the mime in their day the mime made his theatre in the great man's hall he played the fiddle and the harp he sang songs he brought his daughter who walked on her hands and executed astonishing capers the gleeman minstrel or jongleur was already as disreputable as when we find him later on with his ribaudry again we play chess so did our ancestors we gamble with dice so did they we feast and drink together so did they we pass the time in talk so did they in a word as alphonse carr put it the more we change the more we remain the same out of doors as fitzstephen shows the young men skated wrestled played ball practised archery held water tournaments baited bull and bear fought cocks and rode races they were also mustered sometimes for service in the field and went forth cheerfully being especially upheld by the reassuring consciousness that london was always on the winning side the growth of the city government belongs to the history of london suffice it here to say that the people in all times enjoyed a freedom far above that possessed by any other city of europe the history of municipal london is a history of continual struggle to maintain this freedom against all attacks and to extend it and to make it impregnable already the people are proud turbulent and confident in their own strength they refuse to own any other lord but the king himself there is no earl of london they freely hold their free and open meetings their folk motes in the open space outside the northwest corner of st paul's churchyard that they lived roughly enduring cold sleeping in small houses and narrow courts that they suffered much from the long darkness of winter that they were always in danger of fevers agues putrid throats 
plagues, fires by night, and civil wars, that they were ignorant of letters, three schools only for the whole of London. All this may very well be understood, but these things do not make men and women wretched. They were not always suffering from preventable disease. They were not always hauling their goods out of the flames. They were not always fighting. The first and most simple elements of human happiness are three. To wit, that a man should be in bodily health, that he should be free, that he should enjoy the produce of his own labor. All these things the Londoner possessed under the Norman kings nearly as much as in these days they can be possessed. His city has always been one of the healthiest in the world. Whatever freedom could be attained, he enjoyed, and in that rich trading town all men who worked lived in plenty. The households, the way of living, the occupations of the women can be clearly made out in every detail from the Anglo-Saxon literature. The women in the country made the garments, carded the wool, sheared the sheep, washed the things, beat the flax, ground the corn, sat at the spinning wheel, and prepared the food. In the towns they had no shearing to do, but all the rest of their duty fell to their province. The English women excelled in embroidery. English work meant the best kind of work. They worked church vestments with gold and pearls and precious stones. Orphrey, or embroidery in gold, was a special art. Of this they are accursed by the ecclesiastics of an overweening desire to wear finery. They certainly curled their hair, and one is sorry to read, they painted, and therefore spoiled their pretty cheeks. If the man was Hlafward, lord, the owner or winner of the loaf, the wife was the Hlafdig, lady, its distributor. The servants and the retainers were Hlafwetas, or eaters of it. When nunneries began to be founded, the Saxon ladies in great numbers forsook the world for the cloister, and here they began to learn Latin, and became able at least to carry on correspondence, specimens of which still exist, in that language. Every nunnery possessed a school for girls. They were taught to read and to write their own language, and Latin, perhaps also rhetoric and embroidery. As the pious sisters were fond of putting on violet chemises, tunics, and vests of delicate tissue, embroidered with silver and gold, and scarlet shoes, there was probably not much mortification of the flesh in the nunneries of the later Saxon times. This for the better class. We cannot suppose that the daughters of the craftsmen became scholars of the nunnery. Theirs were the lower walks, to spin the linen, and to make the bread, and carry on the housework. End of section 43